be together. We are in a series that I've entitled The Enemies of Gratitude. So far in this series, we've looked at religion. We've looked at grumbling, grumble, grumble, right? Nostalgia, fear, and worry last week. And I want you to know this morning that we're going to go after another enemy, so to speak. And I want you to know, please hear me on this, you are not the enemy. God does not think you are the enemy. Pride, haughtiness, self-righteousness, entitlement that sometimes exists in our hearts, that is the enemy. So, as we go through this this morning, I just want you to know that. I believe the Father in Heaven wants you to know that. As we talk about entitlement, it is an enemy that sometimes resides within us, but we are not the enemy. God loves us. He's pursuing us with an invitation. We should respond to it. When we talk about entitlement, it's a very common uh, lament of our culture. I hear it a lot in conversations. I feel it, right? Kids these days, they're so entitled. It's very easy to think that way sometimes, right? And just so we're all on the same page, I thought we'd start with a definition. What does entitlement actually mean? And like a member of my generation, naturally, when I need a definition, define, colon, entitlement, Google, right? We, we went to Google. So what, what is entitlement? I typed that in there. Here's what came up. It might be too small. You can probably read it. Maybe not. Entitlement. Here's what it is. You can read all of them, but, but the one that I, I really want to focus in on is down there towards the bottom. It says, the belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. No wonder your kids have a sense of entitlement, it says in parentheses, right? Because you treat them like, like they're God's gift to earth, like the world revolves around them. No wonder they believe that inherently they have special rights and privileges. No wonder kids these days grumble, grumble, right? <laughs> That's the definition of entitlement. And you might be thinking, good, I can't wait. You set all these entitled people in their place, preacher. Bring it, right? You might be thinking that. And to that, I say, check your heart. (laughs) Check your heart and I'll, I'll check mine too with you. All right? Here's the deal. Entitlement is very easy to spot in others. And honestly, there are few qualities that, that are as repulsive to us than pride and arrogance and entitlement. You might have thought before, oh, you think you're better than me? It's not very fun to be on the receiving end of that, is it? All right, look at that guy. What a stuck up. He's so stuck up. These people walking around like they own the place. I happen to have graduated from a school in the area who sort of had this, this, uh, this reputation a little bit, Right? Perception is not always reality. I'll say that, right? I graduated from Archibald. Love the people of Archibald. But they have kind of this, people, are you from Archibald? Oh, geez, you people, right? You think you're better than everyone. I know, I know. I'm not slamming if you're from Archibald. We love you. I'm from Archibald. That's not, I'm just saying that's, that's how you talk. That's how we talk, right? We know people from certain towns, Ugh, right? Entitlement. It's very easy to spot in other people. It's repulsive. We hate it. Come on. Get over yourself. Ugh. We hate it in other people. In our own hearts, though, it's a lot more subtle. 
it's a lot less easy to spot. Who, me? Oh, I'm not entitled. I just deserve to be treated better than that, right? I'm not entitled. You have no idea how hard I work. I'm entitled to a certain amount of whatever. See, while entitlement in others is easy to spot and condemn, entitlement within our own hearts is subtle and oh so easy to just justify and explain away. Church, it's a cancer. And just like a cancer, if entitlement within is left undetected, left unchecked, left untreated, it will be deadly. And so I want to encourage you before we begin, before we begin this morning, to look at a text that's going to talk to us about entitlement. Let me encourage you, before you look out there, can we just together agree that we're going to look in here first? We're going to look in here first. As a preacher that I like to listen to often says, he says, the Bible is best read as a mirror, not a set of binoculars. And so I'm going to invite you this morning to undergo a spiritual MRI. A spiritual CAT scan. Don't worry, I contacted your insurance. It's paid for. <laughs> They've approved it, right? It's, it's going to be free to you. I can't guarantee that it's going to be painless, though. And, and here's what I want you to know. If you don't like the diagnosis as you, as you check your heart this morning, I want to encourage you, please remember that Jesus Christ is the great physician, and there is no tumor too cancerous that he cannot remove. There is no person among us who is too sick who will ever hear that terrible phrase, inoperable. Nope. If you, if me, if we will cooperate with the Spirit this morning, we can find a cure for the entitlement that plagues our hearts. So what do you say? Should we, should we go to the Scripture and, and undergo that scan this morning? I invite you to turn to Matthew 22. We'll be in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14 together. As you're turning in your Bibles to Matthew 22, I'll give you a little context onto what's going on here. It's always important that we read Scripture in context, okay? So if, if, if you read it via the text, maybe you flip back a few pages and you learned in Matthew 21, 23, we're told what the context is. We're told that Jesus entered the temple courts... And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. And they asked a question about his authority. Who gave you your, your, your authority, they want to say. So Jesus is in the temple courts. There could be more people standing around, but the conversation is between the ruling elite, the elders, the, the rabbis, the, the teachers, the pastors of the synagogue in Jerusalem at the temple. In case you don't know about who these groups are, there were several different groups, but there were primarily two, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I'm going to stereotype them, and we know that stereotypes aren't necessarily true across the board. There are people in this camp like Nicodemus. We know Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but he was real curious and open to Jesus, probably accepted Jesus later in life. I'm going to stereotype these two groups, but no, not, not every one of them fell into that stereotype. But here, here's who the Pharisees and the Sadducees were. Remember, the, these were the people of God. There were people in both these camps, so, so don't be offended, I'm not making a political statement here, but I'm trying to, to draw some co uh, cultural parallels. The Pharisees, they would have been kind of like those in the Republican Party. They were conservative, perhaps a little legalistic with the word of God. 
They were Ivy Leaguers, well-educated, people of privilege. They weren't white, but they were Jews, right? White privilege. That, that's kind of who the Pharisees were, the, the uptight, right, conservative bunch within the ruling class of Jerusalem. The Sadducees, also considered to be the people of God, they were kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum. If you had the uptight, legalistic conservatives over here, the Pharisees, right? The Sadducees were over here. They were the more liberal of the bunch, perhaps a little bit more like the Democratic Party, right? A little bit more open to interpreting the scriptures a little bit more loosely. Tolerant, accepting, people of love. That's who these two parties were. Sadducees, Pharisees, both ruling elites, educated, privileged in the life of the Jewish nation. People looked up to these leaders. They were respected. Their title carried weight. If you made it into this rank, your family was proud of you. Either one, Sadducee, Pharisee, you'd arrived. Your family was proud. Look at what Look at, look at what they became. Not only did their society give them respect and honor, it was assumed because of their position, not just in government, but also in the church, that, that the Lord was pleased and honored, honored by them as well. The people held them in high regard, and it was assumed because of their influence and their status and their wealth and their knowledge and all things theological and governing, that the Lord was pleased with them as well. So, while it's easy for us to be critical of these people when we read Scripture, I want us to understand that culture, their culture and their tradition had set them up for some entitlement. You see, it's difficult when you start to receive special treatment and accolades from man, positions of power and prominence. It's difficult Not to start to think that you deserve that special treatment. Not just from man, but from God as well. It's into this cultural dynamic, into this situation, into this assumption, this sense of entitlement that Jesus speaks. He shows up in the temple, in their place of authority, on their turf. And instantly, they're not taking this lying down, right? They want to know, Jesus, who are you? Who gave your authority to teach our people? You've been stepping on our toes. What right do you have? Let me see your papers. Where were you educated? You didn't go to our schools. You didn't go to our seminaries. We have not ordained you. By what right, by what authority do you teach our people? Now's the politically correct way of saying, who the heck are you? Where do you get off? By whose authority are you ministering, they want to know. And Jesus... We just love this guy, don't we? He's so shrewd. He knows what they're on about. So he traps them in a question. He says, listen, I'll answer that question. If you tell me by what authority John the Baptist was baptizing people, was his authority from heaven or was it purely from human? Was it purely from other men? And these guys, they're Ivy Leaguers. They know they're trapped. If they say, see, the people loved Johnny B. They loved him. They thought he was a prophet. Like, Johnny B, my man, right? The people, the crowds, 
All of the people that are following these, they, they love this guy. He's a prophet, they said. But they did not like him either. And so they're like, well, if we say it's from heaven, then Jesus has got us. Because we, we hate Johnny B. And so we're trapped there. But if we say, well, it was just from man, then the people, they're about to riot on us. And they're like, well, we don't know. We don't know. And Jesus is like, well, all right, I don't know, I'm not going to answer your question either, right? We don't know. Grumble, grumble. They're probably grumbling. Oh, this guy, right? We can't get him. They plot to kill him. Jesus refuses to answer their question about his authority. This is all in Matthew 21. And then he launches into several parables. We're going to finish with the one in 22, but I, I want you to hear some of these. We're not going to read them. I'll just talk you through it. The first parable is about two sons. He paints this picture. He says, listen, there's a father who owns a vineyard. A vineyard is a common prophetic metaphor for the nation of Israel. God has a vineyard he's planted, and he wants it to bear beautiful and lasting fruit. That's what Israel was supposed to be. The, Israel, the, the leaders, right, the Ivy Leaguers, they're, they're on to this. They, they get metaphors. They get this theme. And so he's like, listen, there's a vineyard. And I'm like, all right, here we go. There's a farmer who owns this vineyard. Okay, we know that's God. There were two sons. Jesus says, all right, the farmer asked the first son, he says, I want you to go work in my vineyard. The first son says, no, I ain't doing it. But then, later, he shows up for work. The second son, father's like, hey, I want you to go work in my vineyard. And the second son is like, yeah, yeah, all right, all right, we'll go. And then he's a no-show. He never shows up for work, right? And then Jesus asks him, he says, all right, which, which son did the father's will? And Jesus the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they answer. They say, well, the first son. I know he said no right at first, but then he showed up, he went to work. The second son, no, he, he never showed up to work. Even though he said the right things, he never showed up. He just said, yeah, you guys are bright. And then he goes on, he says, listen, you are the second son. He says, even the tax collectors and prostitutes believed John, Johnny B, and his baptism. And they are entering God's kingdom. They are coming to work and bearing fruit in God's kingdom. But you don't believe. And you don't believe me. Friends, can we just, for a second, can I just say we need to read our Bibles? Jesus is, is love, absolutely. He is meek and mild, but he also is not afraid of confrontation. And I, don't, I, I just want you to imagine what it would be like to be in this setting. Your leaders, your pastors are standing before him. And then Jesus says this. You got, God, I know, you're the, I know you're the religious leaders, but listen, the traitors of Jerusalem, the traitors of our Jewish people, the tax collectors, they get this. You don't. The prostitutes, people, the prostitutes... They get this. They're coming to the kingdom, and you don't. This is offensive. This is so offensive, right? Even if you're like, I'm okay with, with a little confrontation, you're like, your, your stomach is doing flips if you're in there, right? Jesus is calling them out. He's calling them out. And before these people can recover from the first incision that Jesus cuts into their hearts with his scalpel, he cuts just a little bit deeper. He tells another parable, parable of the tenants, another farmer, another vineyard. He said a farmer owns a vineyard. He's got some renters farming it for him. When it's harvest time, they, they harvest. That's what, what they're being paid to do. And the owner of the vineyard sends servants to come and collect some of the harvest, collect rent. 
And what do these tenants do? Well, they beat, they kill, and they stone the servants that the farmer sends. Now, this farmer, he's merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. And so he doesn't just turn to wrath instantly. No, he, he sends more servants to, to call these renters to give what, what is owed to the farmer. And again, they, they beat this, these servants and they kill them and they stone them. And yet still, the farmer is merciful because he is slow to anger and abounding in love. And he, he again, he says, listen, if, if they won't receive my servants, perhaps they will receive my son. I will send my son to them. And what do these tenants do? They say, this land we want for our own to be our own inheritance. This son is the heir. So if we kill him, then we can take what is rightfully ours. And that's exactly what they do. They kill the son, thinking they'll be able to steal the ground that they're farming if the heir is no longer apparent. Church, Jesus wants to know, how do you think these, the farmer will, will repay these tenants? He asked these leaders, these Ivy Leaguers. I love how they say it. Again, they, they understand things quite clearly. Verse 41 of chapter 21. How will the farmer respond to such wicked tenants? He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, they say. And he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And then Jesus from there goes on and tells them, albeit a bit cryptically, he basically says... He says, listen, unless you accept me, you have no place in my vineyard. Why? Because he quotes prophecy from Isaiah. He says, I'm the cornerstone. I am the foundation upon which salvation is built. I am the cornerstone. I am the foundation upon which all of your religion is built. I am the cornerstone of God's kingdom that the builders, that's the leaders that you have and will reject. They get all this. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. And, that, and we're told in verse 20, or 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. And then, Jesus brings the final cut with his scalpel. Friends, it's the deep one. I want to read the, the last parable with you in Matthew 22. As we'll read it. We'll work through it together, okay? Matthew 22. Verse 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Jesus shows up and he says, listen, this is what I want you to know. The father in heaven has prepared a wedding feast for Christ, the bridegroom, with his bride, the church. He says, you all, all of you, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jews, us here this morning, you have been invited. The king has sent out invitations to all peoples. I have a feast. I want you to come. Verse 3, he sends out servants to those who had been invited to the banquet and he tells them to come, but they refuse to come. 
Then he sent some more servants out. See the lavish invitation, the grace. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. Even though people reject, he continually invites and invites and invites. He sends more servants, verse 4, to invite and said, Tell those who have been invited, I've prepared a dinner. The ox, the fattened cattle, they've been butchered. I have rich fare and food for all to come and buy and eat without paying money. Everything is ready. Come to my wedding banquet. Church, God pursues people. He pursues the Jews in Israel today who do not know him. He pursues the members of Hamas who do not know him and the Arab Palestinians who do not yet know him. He is pursuing you right at this minute, inviting us over and over, sending servants like me and like you who are ambassadors for Jesus to tell us you have been invited to a beautiful wedding feast. You say, what is this feast? The leaders of Israel would have known this because they knew their Bibles. In Isaiah, Isaiah 55, Jesus beckons to us through that old prophet an invitation. He says, come all who are thirsty. Are you thirsty this morning, church? Come to the waters, you who have no money. Come by and eat. There's no inflation in heaven. Come by wine and milk without money or cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread, the prophet says, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me. Listen to me, Isaiah writes, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Even still, the invitation goes out through Isaiah. You may have read this. Through the text this week, Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the mountain of Zion, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, filet mignon, praise Jesus, finest of wines. I don't know what those are, but I'm sure they're tasty. I ain't fancy, but we're going to be in heaven, right? On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheets that cover the nations, the veil that you and I have over us. We do not see clearly, we see dimly, but one day at the feast of the Lamb, we will see and be glad as we eat the fancy feast of our Lord and King. And, verse 8, he will swallow up death. Forever, church, the sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. There will be no tears of sadness shed in heaven. He will remove people's disgrace. Are you ashamed of some things this morning? The Lord Jesus will remove and cover your shame. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. I cried out to the Lord, and he heard, and he answered. We trust him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in our salvation. This is the invitation, church. He says, come. And when he says, come, he says, don't worry about what you're wearing. 
Don't worry about your rags. I got you. I got a wardrobe full of clothes for you. You say, where do you get the clothing? Still from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and a bride adorns herself with jewels, the Lord Jesus says, I've got you. I've got clothes for you. Put on me. Put on my righteousness. When you come, don't worry about what you wear. What you wear. I have got clothes of righteousness from the blood of Jesus that will cover you. The king extends his beautiful invitation. And how do people respond? Verse 5 of Matthew 22. But they paid no attention. They went off. One to his field. Another to his business. Some were too busy to be bothered by the king's invitation, church. They were too busy. Are you too busy? Jesus has invited you to the feast. Don't be about all the other things. The world has many cares, many responsibilities that we're told put us in a chokehold and choke out the seed of the gospel that the Lord plants inside of us. Others, others, they're deceived. They think they're doing the Lord's work. Like the, the, the men in, in, in this passage, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they think they're doing the Lord's work, but they're deceived. There's a, there's a veil over. They think they're so important. Jesus has no right to tell them how to think differently. The king sends an invite. He sends servants, and they say, if God wants to talk to us, then he needs to come himself. If you want me to respond to this, well, then you better show yourself. Prove yourself to me. I need a sign. I deserve a sign. Verse 6. The rest, they seized his servants. They mistreated them. They killed them. They cannot be bothered to come to the king's feast. They're too busy. And some, worse, hate his servants, hate his preachers, hate his Christians. Maybe they thought they were too good to be invited by a servant. Again, if the king wants me to come, then he needs to show up himself. Maybe they wanted a sign. Show us a sign and we'll, we'll believe. Maybe, church, because they didn't know the king. They didn't love the king. Maybe they thought his party was going to be lame. How many people today reject God's invitation because they think he wants to steal their joy and rob them of their fun? God invites. People say, no thanks. We don't like how you've set the table. We don't like the menu you've put together. We don't like how you've worded your invitation. We ain't coming. I want you to hear this, folks. 
God does not start a war with these people. He starts with an invitation to an amazing feast, a gracious invitation, a persistent invitation in the face of rejection. He pursues them with love, but they're too good. They can't be bothered. They reject the invitation. And although the king does not start a war with them, he is more than happy to finish it. Verse 7. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. But now here he is. The king has a feast prepared. A banquet, a generous spread. He spared no expense for his son's wedding. He must have guests to share in his generosity. So even still, he continues to come to the world that has rejected him. Verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. Those I invited, even though they thought they deserved, they did not deserve to come. So Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. And so the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find. Hear the gospel, the good as well as the bad. Come to my wedding. The wedding hall was filled with guests. Again, here is the good news, church. None of us deserves to go to this party. None of us are entitled to it. God says, I am not a respecter of persons. I don't care how prominent you are in the world. Do you know what he says to kings in Psalms 2? To kings and rulers of this world? In Psalms 2 it says, he laughs at them. He scoffs at them. When they try and dethrone him, he laughs because he moves around the rulers and peoples of prominence like pieces on a chessboard to do his bidding, to bring about his will and justice. He is not a respecter of persons. But he does not look down upon us either. Jesus said, I've come to the sick. I did not come to condemn. So he says, I want you to go out to the street corners. Do you know who work on corners, church? It ain't the righteous. It's the unrighteous. God extends the invitation to anyone and everyone, the good and the bad. That means we don't get in by the good that we do. We are also not prevented entry from the feast by the bad that we do either. Praise Jesus. There is grace. Please come, he says. Please come. We are not entitled. We do not deserve an invitation. In fact, what we deserve, what we deserve, church, is hell. You say, what about all my good works? I know I'm not the best person, but I'm not the worst person either. And actually, by society standards, I'm pretty decent. I'm pretty important. I know I don't deserve hell. Surely, God would never send me to hell. Why not, friend? Why not? Based upon what? Society and culture do not set the standard. God does. The king does. It's his party. 
It's his food. It's his son. It's his dime that's footing the bill. He is the only one that has the authority. It's his invitation. And he is not obliged to give it to any one of us. He is not obliged to give us life, another breath. He is not obliged to give us a seat at his table, at the feast of heaven. Apart from his goodness and grace, friends, the only thing that any one of us is entitled to is hell. But there is hope. There's hope. The invitation goes out to the good, to the bad. And Jesus goes on. He says, listen, I, I love if, if you claim my invitation, please come. But how you dress matters. How you dress matters. Verse 11. When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Do you remember the clothes he provided? And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. He had no excuse. The king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Not so meek and mild Jesus. God's preparing a wedding feast, church. You've been invited. Listen to the words of John from Revelation 19. Then I heard that sound like a great multitude, like fans at their team who just scored a touchdown. Like a roaring, washing waters, like pearls of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, they say, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. He's king. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. He's in charge. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. That's us, those who have been invited, the church. And what are they wearing? Fine linen. Bright and clean was given to her to wear. And so as not to confuse things, the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said this, write this, John, blessed, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added this, these are the true words of God. Church, God has a dress code. He supplies the wardrobe. I read in a commentary this week, sometimes kings, when they threw parties, it was not uncommon for them to do this. I don't want my guests self-conscious about what they can wear. I am going to provide for them a wardrobe. I have clothing for them. God has provided for you and I righteousness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Revelation tells us, the fine linen for his bride, the church, it stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Friends, there is such a thing as sin, and the people of God are not meant to wear it. They put on Christ. They put on hope. They put on love. They put on peace. They put on the righteousness of Christ. And you may be thinking, 
What does all of this have to do with gratitude? Well, church, if you and I, if we don't deserve the grace that's been given to us, if we live as if we do, we will never receive the invitation for what it is, a blessing. A blessing. We are not entitled to the invitation. Rejecting God's invitation is a response of pride and entitlement. Think back with me for just a few more moments about the rejections that took place in this parable by these individuals. The invitation went out. Some, they received the invitation. They read through it. The invitation stands for the word of God, church. They did not like how it was worded. They did not like what was in the invitation. And so they tore it up and they discarded it. Because they know better. They're entitled to their opinion. To live their truth. Others, they don't truly know their king. They've been deceived. They believe the father of this world who has said, God is holding out on you. He is not good. They don't know him. They don't trust him. And so when they look at the menu that's at the party, the food that's been set before them, they say, no thanks. We like our own food better. We like junk food. We like our own ways better. We think your party's going to be lame. We ain't coming. Others still resent the king himself. They resent the fact that, that the king doesn't come and show up and prove himself. If you exist, answer my prayers in the way I see fit. Give me a sign. Come invite me yourself. I deserve it. Others still, they don't like the dress that's required. The righteousness of God. I'm not wearing that stuff. I don't care who the king is. He doesn't get to tell me how to dress. He doesn't get to tell me how to live. He doesn't get to tell me how to order my life. He doesn't get to tell me how to do church. You might be the king, but don't tell me what to wear. Entitlement. All of it. At its best, church, and I love you, please respond to the invitation. At its best, if you sit in your entitlement, you will become too busy to be bothered by the king of heaven. At its best. And at its worst, if you let your entitlement and pride go unchecked, you will go to war with God. And you will face an eternity on the bad end of his awesome and terrible and infinite wrath in hell. The God of heaven desires none of this. In First or Second Peter, we're told that he does not wish or want for anyone to perish. He wants us all to respond to the invitation to come to repentance and be saved. We deserve wrath. I deserve wrath, church. But Jesus. Jesus comes and he invites. In Philippians, we're told that although Jesus was God, 
Although Jesus was God, he did not consider equality with God as something to cling to. He was not entitled, even though he's the only person in the history of man that had every right to be. He humbled himself, taking the form of a, taking the form of a servant, becoming like his little flock. So that all and every one of us who would respond by faith at the name of Jesus might be saved, might receive an invitation to come and feast with the king. I'll close with the words of Paul to the Romans. For by grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. I'm going to invite the van to come up. We made an audible this morning. I couldn't think, Caleb couldn't think of a better way to, to conclude this morning than singing of God's worthiness, than exalting Him. And so we're going to conclude with that song that we sang a little bit earlier. Letting the incense of Christ's blood and sacrifice arise day and night, night and day, for inviting us, for covering us, for giving us the wardrobe necessary to receive entrance into the wedding feast of heaven. Jesus is coming back, church. Forever is a long time. Accept the invitation. And if you want a point of application, I thought about just reading this, but it's quite long. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon a long time ago that I read in high school. And as I was prepping for this, I read it again. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's not angry. It is true. If you want to better understand grace and what you have been saved from by the pleasure of King Jesus, I invite you to take some time this coming week and go back and read the sermon that sparked a great awakening in our country couple hundred years ago. Let's pray, and then I'll hand, have a stand and sing of the worthiness of our King. Let's pray. Father, thank you.